Well, last week <clears throat> we saw Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the future governor of Judah, he made his way from Susa, the citadel, and he made his way down to Jerusalem. When he got there, he went on a night ride, and this night ride exposed to him all of the damage of the wall of Jerusalem that needed to be fixed. And he knew that it was a monumental task, and yet he also knew that God's hand was upon him, that God had called him to that task. So here he was, headed down to Jerusalem with this massive task ahead of him of rebuilding this tremendously, almost insurmountably damaged wall. A lot of the damage had been there from when Nebuchadnezzar had invaded and damaged the wall and destroyed Jerusalem. Some of the damage was fresh. It had just happened uh, when King Artaxerxes, who Nehemiah worked for, allowed and basically commanded that the work be stopped. And that's when the surrounding enemies went in, destroyed, burned the, the gates, and, and that's what Nehemiah heard, which drove him down there. Well, you might think that given the fact that God has called Nehemiah to this task of rebuilding the wall, that it would be a simple task, that, that God's hand is in it, and that everything would go smoothly. And yet today, in our text, we find that that's not the case. Our text today is Nehemiah chapter 4. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them up and follow along as I read. And if you're able, just keep them open as I go through the sermon, and you can follow along in the text. Nehemiah chapter 4. It says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building. <laughs> if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem, to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see 
till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, the shields, the bows, the coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. well so that I don't pass out here this morning we're going to try and keep this a bit short today the main point the one main point I wanted to get out of this today is this just because God calls you to do something that doesn't mean that what he called you to do will be easy. God has called Nehemiah to this work. Nehemiah knows it. And yet, consider how he received the call. I mean, as I've mentioned a couple of times, he was living in the lap of luxury in Susa. He had job security. He was servant in the royal court, right-hand man to King Artaxerxes, and He received this call through terrible news. Just hearing about the destruction of Jerusalem gave him incredible sorrow and grief, such that he wept and fasted for days, and then it sent him into a time of deep prayer for months, because he knew that even trying to follow this call would mean to go before the king and ask permission to leave his side. And yet, through deep prayer, he went to King Artaxerxes, who could have easily had his head. He presented to him essentially a list of requests that by all human reason should have been denied. The king granted him his request. He saw God's hand in it, and he went. And yet he had to go under military guard because of the surrounding enemies. What did he see when he arrived in Jerusalem? When he went around and observed the wreckage, he saw an insurmountable problem. 
again, rubble left there since the invasion by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I was thinking about that. If I had to go through just that to get down there, and I saw a wall over a mile long that was a complete destruction, and no professional builders to help me build it, I think I would have turned and gone back to Susa. And yet Nehemiah stayed. And as we saw last week, the repairing of the wall was, in fact, rather difficult because it was kind of a, a picture of the church, a bunch of really people that had no business building a wall coming together and gathering together side by side and using whatever talents and gifts they had to try to rebuild this wall. What I didn't mention last week was that the physical, the logistical, the psychological difficulties of building the wall really paled in comparison to what they were beginning to face. Last week, I didn't really look at it, but you see, even in chapter two, these guys, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and then another guy named Geshem the Arab, heard that they were rebuilding the wall. These three guys came, and the text says they began to jeer at us. They began to mock us and despise us. And they asked them, what are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? What's interesting is how Nehemiah answered them. And I think it shows that Nehemiah had already grown through his own trial to face this one. Because these guys are really kind of a big deal. I mean, we don't know who they are. We've never heard of these guys. But locally at that time, they were pretty scary. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. Remember, the Samaritans were the ones who were really attacking and really hated the Jews at that time. So they had the governor there. They had this guy, Tobiah, who was another local governor. And then this guy, Geshem, he was, scholars say, probably more powerful than the other two guys. And so you had these three local leaders, very powerful, again, locally, facing them. Now, what they didn't realize, and maybe they did, was that Nehemiah had already faced someone much more powerful than these guys. He had already had to go before Artaxerxes, who basically makes these guys look like nothing. And Nehemiah had already had to wrestle with going before basically the king of the known world at that time, the Persian king. And if you go back to Nehemiah's prayer, that one that he prayed for months before facing Artaxerxes, remember what he kept referring to God as. He referred to God, Yahweh, as the God of heaven. And after remembering who God was, Artaxerxes, this great king of the world, became in Nehemiah's mind as simply this man. Just a man like I am. And you notice when these three bigwigs come up and say, what are you guys doing? <laughs> you think you're going to build this wall? Nehemiah's answer reflects what he already came to know about God through his own trial. He said to them, look, the God of heaven is going to make us prosper. And then they got to work on the wall. And so we see that Nehemiah, who learned who God was, who was sent by God, who fulfilled God's purposes for him, stood up for what was right, boldly proclaimed who God was, and then they got to work on the wall. And you would think that the story would end there. 
that all would be well, that God would protect them, he's already led them down there, and that everything would go smoothly. And that's not at all what we see. It's just the beginning. Because in chapter 4, we see these guys return, Sanballat and Tobiah. Only now, it's not just them. They've upped the ante because they come with an army beside them. We see that they have the army of Samaria with them. And we also see that no longer is it just jeering. But Sanballat, now that they haven't backed down from his jeering and mocking, they've begun to build. And then Nehemiah told him to get lost. He's now angry and greatly enraged. Now, I don't know about you, but I tend to know when somebody's angry and greatly enraged at me. So if they're building this wall and they see this local governor with an army standing next to him and he's enraged at what they're doing, you can imagine what that may have done to the spirit of the people. Remember, one, of them, one guy had his daughters out there working with him trying to build this wall. Tobiah joins in and he begin, they begin mocking again. And Tobiah says, look at that wall. A fox could land on top of that wall and knock it down. That's how stupid that wall is. You think that's going to stop this army? Now, what could they say? You think about it. Pretty much everything they're saying is true. If you're there and you're building this wall, and you're looking at this pitiful wall using burned-out stones and rubble, and it's only built to half its height, and this guy is saying a fox could knock it down, what, what are you going to say? Look at what he says. The Jews are feeble. They do face an insurmountable task. They are using stones burned out and rubble. What can they do? They can't dismiss this as false, what this guy is saying, what these guys are saying. They, they have no answer, really. And so really we see here that there is only one answer. And that is the beginning of what we see will be the answer over and over again. And that is Nehemiah turns to the God who sent him here for this work. We see Nehemiah immediately turn to prayer. And it's interesting when you look at this prayer that Nehemiah prays, it's an imprecatory prayer. Imprecatory prayers call for God's enemies to experience God's wrath and justice. Now, there's a lot you can say about imprecatory prayers uh, that we can't get into in this sermon. It's a very complex issue. But one thing we can see about this, that I think is more to the point of what I'm getting at today, is that Nehemiah's prayer, is, it's as though you're there. The way this is narrated, it's as though you're experiencing this mocking and this threat right there with Nehemiah. This prayer is, is so is so from the heart and, and immediate from this threat. And look at what happens in verse 6. The response is, so we built the wall. The wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. And so you can see that they prayed, they sought the God who sent them there, they trusted God, and they got back to the work that God called them to do. Well, so you'd think that would be the end of the story, that the work would be completed, but it gets worse. Verses 7 and 8, when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls was going forward, 
that breaches were beginning to close, they were all very angry. Now you've got three other groups coming and now they're all angry and when you look at the geography from where these groups are coming from, basically Israel is now surrounded by enemies. North, south, east, and west. They're all coming and surrounding them and they're all angry and on top of that, they begin to plot together to come in and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. It's interesting, now their kind of threats, their mocking and their jeering has now amplified. It's now gone beyond that to we've got to attack them to stop this. How do they respond? It's, it's amazing. The same response as before. They immediately turn to the God who called them to this work. Verse 9, we prayed to our God and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Now you think about this, how difficult it's already been to build this wall. And now because of these threats, the difficulty is now ramped up. Now they're not getting rest. Now they have to take part of their workforce that already was kind of in shambles and set it up as a guard against these attacks. Now they're essentially exhausted every day from working on this wall and having to protect themselves against attack. And you notice in our text how their, their own internal strength and internal fortitude begins to wane. If at first they had been inspired by Nehemiah, and they were, that God had sent him here, that God was over this, that God was going to help them, that God was going to protect them, you see what happens in the face of continuous attack from the enemy. They say, our strength is failing. There's just too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to finish this work. Have you ever began to do something and at, at, at the start, it seemed like a great thing. It seemed like a great idea. You were excited to do it. And then after uh, so many things happen during this time, by the end, you're despairing. I thought of the really, I don't know if it was the only camping trip we ever went on. I think it was. I don't think we went on any after this, but it was kind of extreme that the first camping trip that my dad and I ever went on, it's like we, we just went for it all. We, we went to Minnesota out on this island in the middle of one of those lakes with no electricity, nothing. We had to carry everything with us and canoe out to the middle of this island and camp there for two weeks straight. It's like we couldn't just go to like a KOA campground for a night. And the first day was great. We caught fish, we cooked them on the grill and it was a beautiful night. I think, didn't we even maybe catch a glimpse of the Aurora Borealis? <laughs> and the second day it started raining and it didn't stop raining for how, how many, seven days straight? At least. It didn't stop. <laughs> and, and we couldn't do anything. We were sitting in our tent for seven straight days while it poured down rain. And then we risked going back into town just to 
get into a hotel or something and and the canoe ride back into town there were lightning bolts crashing all around us in the lake and I thought we were going to die and by the end of that trip that started out so wonderful I I decided I'm never camping again and I I Michelle always wants to go camping I never want to I let her go on her own and you see that this is what's happened more discouragement you see that this whole thing is beginning to become just a huge burden. In verse 12, at that time, the Jews who lived near them, that's, that's these, these people from the north, south, east, and west, these, these enemies that are coming, the people that are kind of living out on the outskirts near them, they come from all directions, and they say to us 10 times, you need to return to us because we're going to get attacked. We need help. I love... How God, you see this again and again, equipped Nehemiah just for just this situation. It shows you how God equips us to help others when they go through trials. Because look at what Nehemiah, how he responds. He immediately responds to all of the discouragement by pointing them to the God who called them to this work. They say, look, we're not going to be able to rebuild this wall. And he sees the despair. And he turns to them, he says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And you see here, by the language that Nehemiah uses, you see here for the second time that Nehemiah is using language that he learned through the trial that he went through. Because when he was spending those hours and those months in prayer to go before King Artaxerxes, how did he pray? He prayed, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He's already learned that lesson. And now when these people are facing what seemed to them a huge deal in facing these local governors, Nehemiah, who's already learned the lesson by facing Artaxerxes, comes to them and he comes alongside of his brothers and sisters with the lessons that he learned. He comes to them and he, he brings sympathy, compassion, encouragement. And that's how God uses us in the church. He uses us through the trials that we've faced and through the things that we've gone through and the things that we've learned to come alongside our brothers and sisters who are just starting to go through those things. And we can say, listen, I've been there. Here's what God taught me in that situation. And Nehemiah's doing that with them. Now, he takes action. He doesn't just remind them. He takes a lot of action. We see Nehemiah, and Nehemiah's always remembered as a man of action. He mobilizes guards. He places them at the lowest points of the wall, the exposed places. And then he does something pretty smart. He places people on the parts of the wall that are near their own families and homes. Because he knows that a guy will only fight so fiercely to protect a wall, but he'll go to his death to protect his family. And so Nehemiah reminds him, he says, look, we're going to get attacked probably, but I want you to fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. We see in verse, verses 15 to 23 how ridiculously difficult this whole thing becomes. I mean, it ends up that half of them work on building the wall and half of them have to stand guard 
everyone there has to work essentially with one hand tied around his back, building with one hand and, and holding his weapon with the other. Nehemiah also employs as his own personal Jim Waldron. He gets a trumpeter by his side. And as Jim and I talked this week, that's probably the most important verse in this whole text. But he gets this trumpeter so that if there's an attack, he can tell the trumpeter to blow the trumpet and call everyone to that spot to fight and rally. And you think of this, all of this, all of this effort, all of this stuff that they have to do, all of the pain and suffering and and guarding and keeping eyes out and, and trying to protect themselves to build a wall. That's all they're trying to do. They're, they're not trying to build one of the seven wonders of the world. They're not trying to go and attack their neighbors and conquer the world. They're just trying to build a wall. Yesterday, we had a company come over and finish off a fence for us in between our house and, and the neighbor's house. And everything went smoothly. Guy came out, he had his little crew with him, they put up our fence. I don't know how long it took because I was at a meeting with the elders and then by the time I got home from the meeting, the fence was up. Look at this. I mean, they're trying to essentially do the same thing, build a wall, they're not attacking anybody and they've got to go through all of this. Trial after trial after trial. And as you read this, you, you ask yourself, why? Why so much opposition? What is going on here? Why so much hatred? Why so much opposition? Why are these people wanting to kill them and attack them for building a wall? And I think the answer has to be because they were building God's kingdom in enemy-occupied territory. And I don't mean the Samaritans or the Ashdodites or the Arabs or the Ammonites. J.I. Packer, commenting on this, he says this, the real theme of Nehemiah 4 to 6 is spiritual warfare. And Nehemiah's real opponent, lurking behind the human opponents, critics, and grumblers who occupied his attention directly, was Satan, whose name means adversary and who operates as the permanent enemy of God, God's people, God's work, and God's praise. I think he's right. See, who were the Israelites really going up against? They weren't ultimately going up against Sanballat and Tobiah and all the other guys who were coming up against them. Ultimately, they were going up against Satan. And that's why ultimately they had to rely on God to fight for them because after all, how else do you fight a spiritual war? Nehemiah sums it up in verse 20. He says, look, our God will fight for us. Now, he does all kinds of stuff. He sets up guards, he has people hold swords and spears and bows and he does whatever he can, humanly speaking. He doesn't just bury his head in the sand, but ultimately he knows that none of those things will do anything to Satan unless God is in this battle. See, that's essentially where the church stands today. 
Because the church, we right now, sitting on this plot of land, exist in enemy-occupied territory. Now we, Jesus says, will we'll be attacked here and there by the world, that people will come up against us, maybe different, different uh, you, we've, we've seen throughout history, um, leaders, political leaders come up against the church, maybe neighbors don't like us. But ultimately, that's not who our enemy is. There is an invisible war. There is a spiritual war. There is a spiritual enemy. Ephesians 6, Paul says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. God has called us, Christian, to lock arms with other Christians and to build his kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit. But just because God has called us to do something doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Think about the things that you and I try to do and can't seem to ever do right. I mean, what are we trying to do? Think about your own life. I'm not trying to build a seven wonder of the world. I'm not trying to conquer the world. I'm not trying to, we're not trying to build the most spectacular church. Oftentimes we're trying to make it through the day without falling into a besetting sin. Sometimes we're, we're trying just to read our Bibles without having our minds wander. How often do you simply try, if you're a parent, to have one decent family worship time where everyone pays attention and no fights happen? We're trying to just make it through this world. And yet, over and over again, we face trial after trial after trial. And that's because ultimately we're facing and fighting a spiritual battle. And so to face a spiritual battle, we have to do what Nehemiah did. We have to look up before we look out. Matthew Henry says this, the reigning fear of God is the best antidote against the ensnaring fear of man. Nehemiah looked up before he looked out to do what he did in light of what he knew was true about God. It's interesting, Jesus, when he talks about Satan, he's talking to Simon and he says, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you. Think about these chilling words Satan has asked if he could have you so that he can sift you like wheat and Simon I'm sure maybe I would have done the same thing but rather than Simon say Lord please help me Lord you've got to get me out of this if Satan is looking specifically at me and wanting to sift me I need your help Peter says Lord I'm ready to go with you both to prison and death and Jesus just looks at him and says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Jesus says, Simon, Satan is too much for you. Don't you realize who he is? 
He is a roaring lion. He's your adversary. He's prowling around seeking someone to devour. You are nothing for him. He can sift you like wheat, Simon, and he will. What's the answer? Certainly not found in Simon's strength. Jesus says, but fear not, Simon, because I have prayed for you. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, because of my prayer for you, strengthen your brothers. And Christian, if you're sitting out here this morning thinking that you cannot be sifted like wheat, sorry to burst your bubble. We are as nothing to Satan. So how do we win? How do we win this spiritual battle? Well, we don't. But fortunately, we don't have to. The battle's already been won. Satan, interesting is Satan doesn't have to lie. He doesn't have to make things up. Whatever Satan comes to us, he, he tells us we know is true. He's like, we really only have one answer. And that is the same answer that we find throughout this passage, and it is to turn to the God who's called us to this work. To look up, to realize that our God has already fought for us and our God has already won. You know, in all of human history, every single human being that has ever lived has been turned into mincemeat by Satan, except for one. In all of human history, there has been one hero, one who defeated Satan. 